Hello and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. Today we're going to talk about HER2 positive breast cancer in the localized setting, uh, both in the new adjuvant and adjuvant approach. We realize this episode is a little bit late. We're trying to keep on our every other week schedule, but getting a little bit behind. We meant to record yesterday, but the Super Bowl crept up on us, so had to record today. But congrats uh, to Kansas City. We're really appreciative of all of you who've uh, been listening along. Uh, once, as we mentioned before, we always welcome any feedback. We're always trying to make this better. I should also mention that some of these newer treatments that are coming out are still a bit controversial, uh, and our opinions aren't necessarily always the this you know the opinions of all other oncologists in the field. And highly recommend that you read the trials yourself, formulate your own opinions, as well as speak to local experts to see how things are managed in your local area. We have tried to include most of the land mark or most recent articles um, as citations in the show notes, so feel free to go to our website, talkingabouttumors.com, or taking a look at your podcast app, they should be showing up there. So talking about adjuvant treatment of HER2-positive breast cancer, once we saw in the metastatic setting how beneficial trastuzumab anti-HER2 antibody was, there were attempts, as with many other drugs in the adjuvant setting, attempts to move this up to localized cancers to prevent recurrence of disease. This was first studied in two trials that both actually started accrual in the year 2000, the NSABP B-31 study and the NCCTG N9831 study. These were kind of parallel trials that looked at adding adjuvant trastuzumab to the standard of care at the time, which was ACT, which is um, adriamycin, adriamycin, anthracycline, cyclophosphamide, and taxol. For those of you more familiar with the generic names, that's doxorubicin and paclitaxel. So these studies looked at trastuzumab both concurrently with paclitaxel, as well as one of them looked at starting the trastuzumab after the paclitaxel was finished. So concurrent with chemotherapy, as well as after chemotherapy. Remember, as with it, we discussed in the metastatic setting, we do not give trastuzumab at the time of doxorubicin due to the combination of uh, cardiotoxicity. So these studies actually showed a pretty significant benefit. There was a 40% improvement in disease-free survival, as well as a 37% improvement in overall survival. And this was at medium follow-up of eight years. You know, pretty significant results, which really showed that there is a benefit to add trastuzumab to the adjuvant setting. Yeah, for some absolute numbers, the three-year disease-free survival of all patients, those included um, node positive, as well as node negative tumors that were greater than two centimeters. These early trials did not include um, less than two centimeter uh, breast cancers in no negative setting. But the three-year disease-free survival is 87 versus 75.4% in the joint analysis. The three-year overall survival was 94 versus 91%. Absolute benefits seen in both disease-free and overall survival. Now, in these original studies, the uh, trastuzumab was given for one year. Um, why one year was selected? I, well, it's a round number. There's, you know, a lot, we don't know how long is needed until we run these trials. Given how significant of a benefit was obtained and the general tolerable toxicity of trastuzumab, I mean, you have to man- monitor a echocardiogram every three months to make sure you're not leading and in, running into cardiotoxicity, but for the most part, people don't have significant symptoms. Um, so this was looked at in an extended phase with, with a two-year um, duration of the treatment. In the HERA trial, it was found that there was really no significant improvement of a two years over one year. There was significant increase, though, in cardiotoxicity, two years versus one year, 7.3% versus 4.4%. 
looking at the other direction, can we give it for a shorter period of time? Ends up being a bit more of a complicated uh, findings here. There was two trials that were run around the same time and actually published in the same issue of The Lancet, the Persephone trial and the FAIR trial. These are both non-inferior design, looking at uh, six months of trastuzumab versus one year of trastuzumab after standard chemotherapy regimens. If you haven't listened to our discussion of the IDEA trial, we highly recommend you go back and listen to that now. We, we tried to do our best to highlight issues with non-inferior trials and difficulties analyzing these studies because that really comes into play here. These trials actually had separate outcomes, but likely due to differences in their design. Both had over 3,000 patients. Um, one was powered to detect a 3% difference in four-year disease survival, and the other was powered specifically for a hazard ratio of 1.15, which assumed an absolute disease-free survival of about 2%. The study powered um, to allow for a, a wider disease-free margin, which was the Persephone trial, did not show a significant difference, so it did meet non-inferiority. However, the trial that was giving a 2% absolute difference in disease-free survival did show non-inferiority. And the one-year duration had an 86% disease-free survival, five years versus 84%. Looking at these two trials, we see that there might be a, a difference overall, although it's probably small. In general, as the, once again, this is a generally well-tolerated therapy, I think the standard of care has remained one year. So just some logistics. Radiation therapy can be given with adjuvant trastuzumab. So in patients that require adjuvant chemotherapy plus trastuzumab, you would give the chemotherapy first. And once you're done with the chemotherapy, you can do the extended trastuzumab to complete a year. And you can start radiation when you're just doing the trastuzumab. And it's the same thing for adjuvant endocrine therapy for patients that are triple positive, meaning that they are ERPR positive as well as HER2 positive. Their treatment includes adjuvant endocrine therapy and adjuvant HER2 therapy. The adjuvant endocrine therapy can be given with the trastuzumab, and we typically start that after the chemotherapy. The initial trials, as we said, initially looked at whether or not you need to give trastuzumab sequentially or concurrently with paclitaxel, and they showed that there was really no difference. Just extends the duration of how long people are giving systemic therapy. So standard of care is once you've completed your anthracycline component of treatment to then add in the trastuzumab with your taxine. Given the toxicities seen with chemotherapy, particularly anthracyclines, there have been attempts to de-intensify chemotherapy for patients with small node-negative tumors. This was looked at in the APT trial, which looks at patients with tumors less than 2 centimeters and node-negative. And it's a single-arm study, a phase 2 trial, looking at adjuvant taxol and herceptin. So adjuvant trastuzumab and paclitaxel. Given weekly for a total of 12 weeks, and then the trastuzumab was continued for a total of one. This study showed pretty good results with a three-year disease-free survival of 98.7% and a seven-year disease-free survival of 93% and a seven-year overall survival of 95%. The study included 17% of patients that had T1A tumors, so that's less than five millimeters, and 31% T1B, so five millimeters to one centimeter, and the remainder were all between one and two centimeters. So again, this was not compared to the standard of care at the time, which would be an anthracycline-based regimen. But given these really good disease-free survival and overall survival results, this is, has really become a good option for patients with, again, tumors less than 2 centimeters and no negative. So building on the fact that trastuzumab is such an efficacious way of targeting these tumors and that de-escalation of chemotherapy seems to be an option in smaller tumors. There was a trial, BCRG006, that looked at an anthracycline-free regimen in the adjuvant space. I think it's safe to say that in the United States that 
the xanthocycline free regimen has become, I guess it become standard of care in the U.S. I, I've at least seen it where I've been working. I think where you are, it's the same. Yeah, we rarely give anthracyclines to patients with HER2 positive disease, at least from what I've seen. And where I trained in Canada, that was not necessarily the case. Um, and anyhow, the, the main trial that uh, initially looked at this was uh, the BCRG006 trial. Uh, this was by Dr. Sloman and colleagues. And this was a one-to-one-to-one randomized trial. So there's three arms. And this was looking at ACT using ACT, including trastuzumab during the uh, paclitaxel regimen. And then the new experimental regimen of trastuzumab, carboplatin, and docetaxel given for every three weeks. The way this trial was designed was that each of the trastuzumab-containing arms were compared to ACT alone. These two arms were not compared to one another. The primary outcome was disease-free survival, and both of the trastuzumab arms, not unsurprisingly given what we just spoke about, showed improvement in disease-free survival. At five years, the ACT with trastuzumab had an 84% disease-free survival. The experimental TCH had a five-year disease-free survival of 81%, and this was compared to the trastuzumab-free arm that had a disease-free survival of 75%. Overall survival was also significantly improved at 92%, versus 91% versus 87% respectively. So both the trastuzumab containing arms were superior statistically to the non-trastuzumab arm, and the authors concluded that the they had generally similar outcomes. And this was persistent up in the 10-year follow-up that has since been published. Now, what has led to this becoming much more frequently used in the United States were the differences in toxicities. The ACTH uh, arm uh, had a CHF risk of 2%, uh, clinical CHF at least. This was 0.4% in the TCH group. At the follow-up, there was a total of eight cases of AML in the ACTH arm compared to just one in the TCH arm. And this was in 3,000 patients, so a rate of 8 AML per 1,000 patients with the ACTH arm. I think one question that remains in my mind, how would dose dense do in this setting? And we know that dose dense ACT is 30% better than ACT as a Q3 weekly regimen. And I'm curious myself if that added benefit would make a dose sense ACTH, which is what I used where I trained previously, uh, superior to the TCH arm. I think this is certainly a question that is warranted asking, and especially given that although there are numerically greater AML rates, the overall survival is still numerically greater, even without a dose-dense ACT regimen. Yeah, I mean, I think that this would definitely be useful to be studied against dose-dense ACTH, but um, I think some of the fear comes from the dreaded AML cases. If you've ever seen a case of secondary AML after treatment for breast cancer or another cancer, they are very difficult to treat and the outcomes are not very good. So I, I can see why some providers would be hesitant or would try to avoid anthracyclines at all costs. Yeah, certainly our our goal is cure and balancing these severe toxicities is important. Always risk benefits that we we discussed. And I think as we get more effective anti-HER2 targeted drugs, we may be able to safely move away from anthracyclines. Sheer evaluation of the evidence to date, there is still some equipoise here. So last episode, we spoke about pertuzumab, which is a second anti-HER2 therapy that binds to a different binding site on the HER2 molecule. And this has shown some benefit in the metastatic setting. And there was attempts to look at this in the adjuvant setting as well. So the affinity trial looked at the addition of pertuzumab to trastuzumab plus chemotherapy. The chemotherapy was physician's choice chemotherapy. So there are a few different options. The addition of pertuzumab did show a 3% invasive disease-free survival benefit 
at median six years of follow-up. However, this was entirely driven by the lymph node positive patients. So in patients that were lymph node negative, there was no benefit. Um, but in patients that were lymph node positive, the six-year disease-free survival was 88% versus 83%. So an absolute benefit of about 4.5%. Of note, there was no overall survival benefit. At six years of follow-up, 95% versus 94%. One of the toxicities to be aware of is diarrhea. In this study, 10% of patients in the pertuzumab arm had grade 3 diarrhea versus only 3.7% of patients in the trastuzumab alone arm. There was some concern that you could be increasing cardiac toxicity by adding a second anti-HER2 agent, but this really was not the case. The cardiac toxicities were 0.8% in the pertuzumab arm versus 0.3% in the trastuzumab alone arm. Increase in diarrhea, but luckily no increase in cardiac toxicity. We had mentioned in the MedStack setting that neither of these agents have a strong CNS penetration, and that was reflected in the long-term outcomes that the risk of CNS recurrence was equal with or without pertuzumab, about 1.1 and 1.4% respectively. So because of this, patients that are lymph node positive, you can consider adding pertuzumab to your adjuvant regimen. Further interest in using some novel agents to see if we can further improve upon the benefit of trastuzumab alone uh, was looked at using one of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, neratinib. This was in the Extinet trial. This study looked at patients who had completed a year of a trastuzumab-containing chemotherapy-based regimen and looked at giving the oral TKI for an additional year after completion of trastuzumab. So give chemo and trastuzumab for one year, and then once that's complete, you start the pill and take that for one year. This was a trial that included uh, 2,800 patients. They're randomized one-to-one, stratified by hormone positivity and um, nodal status. About 57% of these patients were homeroom with vector positive. And the five-year invasive disease-free survival benefit was 90 versus 87.7%. The authors of the study did look at subgroups, and they found that there was no significant benefit in the hormone-negative group, but there was a hazard ratio of 0.6 in the hormone-receptor-positive group. And in the follow-up publication, the authors only looked at the hormone-receptor-positive subgroup, and once again, um, they did find a significantly improved disease-free survival in that population. We briefly talked about neuratinib in the mastag setting, and it's worth noting that this has a very high risk of diarrhea, and grade 3 diarrhea in this trial was 40%. In fact, 30% of the patients in the neuratinib arm ended up discontinuing due to toxicity. This is relevant because in our, as we discussed in our hormone receptor positive studies, um, looking at the Bolero 2 trial, there was a very high rate of patients who were ending up with early censorship in the active agent arm. And there has been some follow-up studies that have looked at the risk of informative censoring here. And there's even been some analysis that have suggested that potentially the when you exclude the patients who were censored from the trial, that there may be no benefit at all to neuratinib. Obviously, these post hoc um, studies are, are limited in benefit, but I think there's certainly a lot of questions about how advantageous this drug is and why it only worked in the hormone receptor positive subgroup and not the hormone receptor negative group. I think another important point is that this study was done before we really started using pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting. So I think if you're going to be treating someone with adjuvant pertuzumab, that may not be the study may not be applicable. So I don't really see a role for neuratinib if someone has already gotten adjuvant pertuzumab. Interestingly, I think that this drug was actually approved for um, all high-risk HER2-positive breast cancers in the adjuvant setting, and they didn't even specify in the approval um, that it had to be hormone receptor positive, when the benefit was really only seen in the hormone receptor positive patients, and there were the issues that we just mentioned. 
So a more promising area where the approach to HER2 has been developing is, is moving treatment to the neoadjuvant space. This is for all the same reasons as what we had discussed in our gastrointestinal talks. It provides an opportunity to help downstage in advance. It gives an idea of how well tumors are responding. I think for breast cancer specifically, if you can downstage the axilla, it can allow for easier surgery, such as a sentinel lymph node biopsy as opposed to an axillary lymph node dissection. So I know that some of the surgeons, many of the surgeons prefer neoadjuvant treatment. There's also been this phenomenon known as the pathologic complete response. I think we spoke about this in one of the earlier discussions, but when we go to surgery and we look under the microscope, there's no evidence of viable tumor. And post hoc analysis of uh, neoadjuvant trials in breast cancer have found that the patients who achieve a pathologic complete response have significantly improved long-term disease-free survival compared to those who don't. And this has been clearly demonstrated as a prognostic marker, specifically in HER2-positive, hormone-negative, and triple-negative breast cancer. So talking about neoadjuvant treatment, we really used many of the adjuvant regimens and just pushed them up to the preoperative setting. There's been a trial looking at the addition of neoadjuvant pertuzumab uh, to trastuzumab um, in patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. This was called the Neosphere trial. So the Neosphere trial looked at 417 patients and included four different arms. Three of them had chemotherapy and one was a chemo-free arm. The arms were docetaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab. Then there was docetaxel with trastuzumab. Then the third one was docetaxel, pertuzumab. And the fourth one was the chemo-free arm, looking at just trastuzumab, pertuzumab, so the dual anti-HER2 therapy. And the primary endpoint of this was pathologic complete response. The pathologic complete response rate was highest in the docetaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab arm of 46%. The trastuzumab, uh, docetaxel arm, and the pertuzumab, docetaxel arm had a similar pathologic complete response of 29% and 24%. And of note, the trastuzumab, pertuzumab, the chemo-free arm, had a PCR rate of only 17%. So this adds more data to the fact that these agents should really be given along with chemotherapy rather than on their own. Looking at the pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and docetaxel versus the trastuzumab and docetaxel, uh, the five-year disease-free survival did appear to favor the double anti-HER2 agents with an 86% versus 81%. However, due to the small size of the group and the multiple arms, um, this did not meet statistical significance with a hazard ratio of 0.7, confidence interval of 0.3 to 1.4. I think it's important to mention that although the PCR does reflect an improvement in long-term outcomes and has certainly become a part of a regulatory approval, both in HER2-positive and triple-negative disease. It has not been shown to be a, a good surrogate marker for long-term outcomes. And what I mean by that is, it's, it, although it's prognostic, it's very difficult from a trial design and statistical analysis standpoint to show surrogacy, and they also have to show predictive nature as well, which is to say, adding in more drug to achieve pathologic complete response lead to better outcomes. The way that I kind of think about this is if I need less chemo and and, um, anti-HER2 agent and get a PCR, this is reflective of a very favorable disease biology. If I add more drugs up front to try to smash something down to a PCR, although I may be achieving that outcome, I may be obscuring some of these bad actor tumors that may uh, still have a, a recurrence. Although I think there's certainly a good argument to be made to drive more patients down sooner into PCR. I think we have to be mindful, and I know there's lots of interest of trying to better validate this as a, as a surrogate endpoint. Yeah, that's a good point. Although there's some questions on whether or not we need to escalate therapy in the new adjuvant setting, there's 
been a good use of tumors that don't meet PCR to try to escalate in the adjuvant setting. So to try to select these higher risk, poor prognostic tumors and give them more efficacious therapy on the back end to try to get more disease-free survival. And that was looked at in the Catherine trial. So this trial looked at about 1,500 women with HER2-positive breast cancer, and it looked at a neoadjuvant taxane plus or minus anthracycline regimen chemotherapy regimen, um, as well as trastuzumab. And for patients that did not achieve a pathologic complete response, they were randomized to either continuing trastuzumab for 14 more cycles or switching to TDM1, which is trastuzumab amptanzine, which, as if you listen to our metastatic episode, is a chemotherapy linked to trastuzumab. So it attaches to the HER2 molecule and releases chemotherapy So again, for patients that did not achieve a PCR, they either got trastuzumab or switched to TDM1 for 14 cycles. Their primary endpoint was three-year disease-free survival, and it was higher in the TDM group, 88% versus 77%. So after this trial, this has really changed our management in the adjuvant setting. So for patients that do not achieve a PCR, uh, we switch them to TDM1 in the adjuvant setting. If they do achieve a PCR, then we continue the trastuzumab for another 14 cycles to complete a full year. The study did not uh, obtain a significant overall survival benefit, although there was a hazard ratio of 0.7, and uh, long-term data is still pending at this time. Logistically, uh, TDM1 can be given alongside radiation. This might actually change in the next few years with the advent of CDXD. There's been attempts, and nothing has been reported yet, but there are studies ongoing looking at uh, adjuvant TDXD instead of TDM1 for patients that don't achieve a pathologic complete response. Just to kind of tag along on my question about whether or not we need to be escalating therapy in the neoadjuvant space, you know, given that we see that the TDM1 has shown a very clear statistically significant um, disease-free survival, maybe a trend towards overall survival, I'm wondering if we can get away with using less drug up front, so maybe treating with a pertuzumab-free arm, and we end up having fewer patients with PCR, we get more patients on TDM1, is that going to lead to better long-term outcomes? Certainly a question that I think would be worth asking in a clinical trial setting. So I know that was a whirlwind of information, and hopefully we didn't put everyone to sleep. But bottom line, um, adjuvant trastuzumab has really revolutionized the treatment of HER2-positive breast cancer in the localized setting. Just to go back and to put things back into context once again, you know, the more recent drugs we're talking about having absolute benefits of about, you know, maybe two, maybe three percent of disease-free survival and questioning towards benefits in overall survival. But the initial uh, combined analysis of the two trials found a 10-year overall survival benefit of 84 versus 75 percent. So really, truly uh, impressive outcomes and improvements for our patients. And thinking about duration, right now, the recommended duration is one year of adjuvant trastuzumab. There have been studies looking at two years with no no extra benefit, and there is still some controversy about shortening to six months. Studies having conflicting data, but given the overall good tolerance of trastuzumab, the recommendation is one year of treatment. In patients with two centimeter smaller tumors, you can likely de-escalate your chemotherapy to include paclitaxel alone, just given weekly for 12 weeks. And in terms of chemotherapy, it seems as Ryan said, this is done differently in different countries, depending where you are practicing or training. Um, in the United States, at least, there's really been a push to kind of avoid anthracyclines in the adjuvant and now neoadjuvant setting using using docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab as opposed to an anthracycline-containing regimen. However, this has not been compared to kind of the gold standard anthracycline-containing regimen, which would be dose-dense ACT. 
And then the light of the Catherine trial, which shows that escalating therapy for patients who don't get PCR, I think it's safe to say that in the vast majority of patients, we're going to be trying to treat HER2 positive disease in the new adjuvant setting using a chemotherapy regimen with at least trastuzumab once the taxane is initiated. And in node positive disease, question of maybe an added benefit of including pertuzumab with that therapy. And then for patients that do not achieve a pathologic complete response to new adjuvant therapy, based on the Catherine trial, we would change these patients to adjuvant TDM1. And if they do achieve a PCR, they can continue adjuvant trastuzumab for a year. I think we've mentioned in the Metastax space, there's a lot of anti-HER2 drugs currently on the market. I'm sure there's many more in development. And this is certainly a space that has been changing even just during the short time that we've been in practice. And I'm expecting it to be changing all the more so. So certainly an area of excitement in the breast cancer management. So on that note, um, happy Valentine's Day tomorrow. You guys can celebrate by listening to our podcast and have a good night. Bye for now. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking About Tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.